1: A new Jesus phenomenon on TikTok is essentially the prosperity gospel and then the role that expectation plays in our faith in Jesus. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this President's Day. As we come to the close of our afternoon, hopefully you had the day off of school today, day off of work, banks are closed, no mail. So, uh, you know, hopefully you enjoyed a day off, maybe with your family. If you get went even further for those of you that observe, hopefully you remembered some presidents today you thought about the presidents and uh yeah always enjoy president's day right as i can remember as a child or as a student you got through christmas and new year's and then and then you just had a bunch you know martin luther king day off but then you have just a bunch of school and then president's day you always kind of forgot that it was there like my kids last week were like oh i don't think we have school on monday and then they had no idea why And I said, guys, it's President's Day. Oh, okay. And they they moved on to, this is great that we don't have school today. So uh, I did text my daughter in Tunisia. As many of you know who listen to this show, she is studying abroad this semester. And I said, tough, this is the first time on your trip that – that it hurts you to not be in the United States. You probably have school today. I said, it's President's Day. And she just wrote back, we are not observing over here. So, yes, it's a strictly American day off. Hopefully you got the day off and you had yourself a good day. And hopefully you had a great weekend as well. It was a pleasant weekend out there weather-wise, but hopefully you had a good time. Now, yesterday, we're, we're in like the sports doldrums right now. The Super Bowl was last week. Baseball season doesn't really pick up. Uh, until it opens, you know, kind of April 1. You got regular season basketball and college basketball, but that's that just doesn't do it for most of us. The way football or even for me, baseball does. And so your February is like the, the sports wasteland. I found myself watching the the Genesis Invitational Golf Tournament yesterday after church, just kind of lounging on the couch. Uh, watching the nice weather and some golf and living vicariously through them. But yesterday was the NBA All-Star Game. I don't know if you are interested in the NBA All-Star Game, if you watched any of the NBA All-Star Games, but it's unwatchable. And uh, it was literally the winning team scored 211 points. It was worse than a game that you would see at the local health club. As they, uh, in the middle of the game, Luka Doncic, took a shot from like 65 feet away just and laughed. They don't care. The NBA has got to do something about that game. That's my sports commentary for the day because it was unwatchable and probably the best thing because the you know the slam dunk contest is difficult to watch now. It's all kind of hard to watch now. The three-point contest between Steph Curry and Sabrina Nescu. Uh, was re- they were both phenomenal, got, you know, the best male shooter versus the best female shooter. As Steph said afterwards, "Hey, does it matter if male or female? If you can shoot, you can shoot." And uh, it was really competitive and really fun to watch. Steph Curry eventually won that, but but really cool thing you could go back if you're going to go watch anything from the All Star Weekend, go check that one out online. Go find that one. But we're also headlong now that we're in February. We are staring down the presidential election as it continues to come. I was out with some friends. My wife and I were out with some friends this weekend from our church, and we just got into a conversation about the presidential election. And it, you know, anecdotally, it continues to, uh, with each person I talk to, it continues to affirm or confirm what I'm feeling and what I believe most people that I know are feeling, and that is this, how in the world are these two our our, uh, nominees, our presumptive nominees? How in the world is this going to be our choice again? Like, I think it's actually a small minority who's excited about um, the two of them. And I even think it's a minority in each party who are interested in either of them. So uh, after our show the other day, former president trump was fined 355 million dollars and you could believe that that's unwarranted or warranted you could believe whatever you want to believe about that but it's yet another kind of blemish on the um on the resume if you will of former president trump we're going to do a story later today or tomorrow uh, about character and about kind of even the the language that President Trump uh, has made commonplace over the last decade or so, a little less than that. And then you have President Biden, who they're not out there right now, his quote unquote surrogates, his people. They are not out there trying to stand up for his record. They are not out there trying to tout what has happened in the first four years. But instead, as NBC News wrote this morning, Biden's allies are stepping forward to vouch for him amid age questions. Some prominent Democrats aren't persuaded that the approach will ease concerns about his cognitive abilities. In the days since special counsel Robert Hur released a report that described Biden's memory as, quote, significantly limited presidential appointees and lawmakers have been stepping forward one by one to attest to his acquitted. So, uh, you know, Debbie Dingell from Michigan said, you need to let Joe Biden be Joe Biden. She was out there uh, on the Chuck Todd podcast. Uh, And, you know, you get all of these different people who say, uh, that they're eager to de- debunk the report last week uh, that Biden is um, not doing well. That he's that he's not doing well, and that he's continued to cognitively decline. I I actually think um, I I don't know that I will believe any. Not I I'm not even try to believe it. We see what's going on with President Biden, and in many ways. Those of us who've watched aged grandparents or whatever deteriorate, it is just sad to watch. Like we, I think we can acknowledge that. Um, but it's interesting that we hadn't have yet to hear from the Barack Obamas of the world and others. Um, so that's our choice right now. Uh, Seventy-eight year old President Trump, who c- continues to have legal issues and seems to have some cognitive issues of his own. 82 or whatever year old Joe Biden, who uh, increasingly seems to be having cognitive issues uh, as well. Um, And it's just fascinating to me that it's not even about either of their records. And maybe we'll get there, but it's not about what Trump did in his four years versus what Biden did is has done in his last, you know, pushing four years here. But it's literally about do either of these guys have the character and the mental capacity to do four years. That, my friends, is the politics that we have in our country right now. And it is what it is. Those of you who are uh, discouraged by this, which I think is many of us, we are reminded that our hope is not put in our lawmakers. That's not where our hope lies. And and that's not just a... Um, a pretend statement. This is a, this is what we, we hold onto that in the end, if, uh, if our candidate doesn't win, that it's not the end of the world because we know that Jesus Christ sits on the throne. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not on the ballot come uh November, And we can rest in that fact. We can rest in the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, uh, in whom is a firm foundation in whom we can put our trust. I I feel like we say that over and over again. And a little uh, preview, we're going to say that almost daily from now until the election. Because I need to be reminded, we need to be reminded. When I watch these things on TV, I can just get discouraged by all of it. But in that discouragement about our political system, uh, allow it to point your gaze to Jesus. Allow it to point your eyes, your vision to Jesus and go, okay, no, 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 I've got the right perspective now. I can hold on to the fact that Jesus Christ, the firm foundation sits on the throne for now and all of eternity and that he is good. So care about the election, wring your hands about the election, all of that stuff. But just do not treat this presidential election uh, like its ultimate, Like like the fate of the world hangs in the balance. Well, February the 19th, as we continue to march towards springtime, my son is getting ready to play baseball, and that's all he talks about and thinks about. It seems like my daughter's getting ready to play softball. And I, I, as we do that, like the beginning of the baseball softball season is the worst in Illinois because for the, about the first two weeks, it just rains and rains and rains. I think last year, my son's baseball team, of their first 10 games, they probably played three of them. And the rest were just cold. Uh, the rest were uh, rain. That's what it does here in the springtime. But eventually it changes. And then baseball ushers in, softball ushers in, nice weather, springtime. Summertime. And I could tell you it's coming. It's coming. So continue to hold on even now as we have warmer weather here for the month of February. All right. Are you part of social media? Most of you are Facebook, you're on Instagram, you're on Twitter. But one that a lot of us who uh, are of my age, variety, and older, I'm 46, that we probably are not on is the TikToks. Uh, TikTok is a big thing with generations below us. And with that in mind over at Religion News, they're talking about a TikTok Jesus and the amazing kind of traction that's getting and asking, what do we do with this? So let me give you the background. The TikTok profile Daily Believer has 70 videos with computer-generated Jesuses looking directly at the viewer, beseeching them to stop scrolling and watch the next minute's worth of content. All of these Jesuses are long-haired and bearded, recalling uh, the paintings of the 1940s. Now, some wear the crown of thorns. Some look alarmingly like the actor Jared Leto, uh, it says here. Nearly all promise a surprise or good news soon in exchange for the viewer liking, commenting, amen, or sharing it with their friends or family. So you might be like, ah, what's the big deal? Well, with this digital kind of... Outreach, this kind of digital strategy, the Daily Believer has gained, uh, as of the start of this past new year, over 800,000 followers and over 9.2 million likes. And so uh, it has theologians, you never thought theologians uh, would really wrestle with what do we do with TikTok Jesus? That's kind of where we are now. What do we do with TikTok Jesus? The author of this article says, as a scholar of religion in the U.S. and its intersection with pop culture, I've been studying the ways that American Christians use media and popular culture to perform religious work and evangelical outreach for the past 13 years. And he argues that this TikTok phenomenon uh, in which viewers are promised good luck for sharing, liking or commenting on videos – of a computer-generated Jesus is close to what is known as the prosperity gospel. That is the Christian belief that God will reward faith with this worldly comforts like health and wealth. This is what we're getting at. This is what we're the danger of this. Because on the one hand, you want to set you, we want to cheer on creative uh, tech-savvy people who figure out ways to use TikTok, who figure out ways to use Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or Twitter for, for legitimate ev- um, evangelism outreach. Like, there is a mission field out there behind screens that, that we have to get our arms around. There is certainly true, but the way that this one works – is uh, is a sign of the times, I would say. Uh, it's a TikTok chain letter. And this isn't just a TikTok thing. You see these on Facebook all the time. And every time uh, I see uh, somebody in my church liking these or, or, or um, forwarding one of these, I go, ah, no, don't do that. This article says religious and monetary motivations are not mutually exclusive. In fact, their union is key to one of the most popular recent developments in American and global Christianity, which is called the prosperity gospel, a subsection of charismatic Christianity that says God will ensure followers material wealth and happiness as long as they believe in God. This is the problem. Prosperity theology. It's not about TikTok. Prosperity theology has been around for a long time. And it is, it is non-Christian. It is anti-Jesus. It is dangerous and it's growing like wildfire. I read a, this a couple months ago. Uh, there was a study that said the 10 fastest growing uh, churches in America, the 10 fastest growing churches in America were blatantly prosperity gospel churches, where the pastor gets up and says, uh, if you pray this prayer, God will do this for you. If you give this money, God will give you this much money back. If you do this, God will do this. That's what this is. If you like this TikTok video, God will do this for you. And and back in the 1990s and 2000s, this was emails and social media posts. Before that, it was chain letters where the recipient was promised good luck for forwarding or curses for the breaking the chain. This has just simplified it into the 2020s and just said, here's a TikTok video. Hit, I believe, hit, I like. And you like, you might be thinking to yourself, well, where's the money in that? Where's the motivation for the money? Well, uh, the creator who can uh, be compensated by TikTok between two and four cents for every thousand views. For example, welcome Jesus into your home could have earned the creator close to $1,000 just from views with the possibility for additional money earned on sites like Facebook Reels. These are money-making ventures. Friends, uh, the prosperity gospel is, uh, is really um, appetizing. It's really appetizing. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's appetizing in the sense that we want to believe it's so simplistic and formulaic that if I pray this prayer, God will do this for me. It's called the health and wealth gospel. He will promise me health. He will promise me wealth. He will promise me prosperity. That sounds great. But here's the problem with it. The Bible. The problem with it is Jesus's story. The early church, the Bible as a whole. Because to believe the prosperity gospel is to say that the early church followers who were martyred, who were penniless, who were homeless or whatever else, they must have gotten it wrong. They didn't pray the right prayers. Jesus was crucified. Where was his health and wealth? And over and over and over again, this is just a scam. If you are part of a church, I don't, I don't take this lightly because I never, you know. If you listen to the show, uh, we are slow to say leave a church, but if you are a part of a church that is preaching a doctrine that says if you pray this you will be rich, if you pray this you are guaranteed health, if you give us five dollars you will get ten dollars back from God, if that's the kind of church you are part of, you need to get rid of a get out of there because that is a non Christ following church. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, in this world, you will have prosperity. And the prosperity gospel is spreading like wildfire in places like Africa, where people are just clinging, hoping for prosperity. And I believe that it is of the enemy. Let's believe the true gospel, not the prosperity gospel that says, oh, just pray this prayer and all will be well. It's not the way it was in the early church. It's not what Jesus taught, and it's not the true thing today. Uh, As you know, uh, we talk a lot about current events on this show and other things, but what we're really concerned about is the church, the big C church. How is it that we live Christianly? How is it that we navigate the difficulties of life? How is it uh, that we um, work through the struggles that we may be facing and feeling? That becomes the question before us that we really try to tackle on this show because Candidates, presidents going to come and go. Stories are going to change into the next day. Like we can't be just driven by the stories of the day. But how do we ground our faith? And really part of that is what do we do when we have family members who are struggling? They might be struggling health-wise or they might be struggling with something serious. But also what I mean is struggling in their faith and deconstructing their faith. Over at the Gospel Coalition, they wrote this article, Help, My Loved One is Deconstructing. It begins with a, with a story or a question in which somebody says, Our daughter is deconstructing her faith, and she has cut us off. She even wrote us a letter explaining that we're unsafe because we have toxic theology. What do we do? And they go on to say, uh, Sadly, this is a common sentiment we hear as we travel to speak about deconstruction. We've heard countless stories from concerned parents, siblings, spouses, and pastors. They're desperate to understand what's happening to their loved ones, and they hope to find a way to engage and reconnect with them. So, uh, what do we do with deconstruction? Uh, What do we do with deconstruction? When you have that loved one, that child who goes off to college and comes back going, I don't really believe this anymore. So first, we have to define the term deconstruction. Um, Deconstruction is essentially kind of deconstructing, breaking down your faith, saying, I don't believe that, I don't believe that. But they make an interesting point here. There's no deconstruction without a deconstructor. Every faith deconstruction story is about a person and their unique experiences. And while the Bible doesn't use the word, it does offer significant insights into faith deconstruction. Scripture gives an accurate description of who we are as people and how we relate to God. Therefore, If we want to better understand our deconstructing loved ones and how to relate to them, we should pay attention to a couple things that are described in the Bible. So one, deconstructors, I like that they're focusing on the person here because we can get so worked up in the, I have to save the faith, they're deconstructing. Let's talk about the person. This is the most important point in all of them. They say, number one, deconstructors as image bearers. There's some things we know about everyone who has deconstructed his or her faith because they're all true. They're true of all human beings. Every deconstructor, regardless of age, race, gender, uh, or social status, is made in the image of God. Therefore, all are intrinsically valuable and worthy of love, dignity, and respect. It means that they are worthy. They are not. Um, An afterthought. They are not um, less of a person now that they are questioning their faith. They still hold the value, intrinsic value and worth that comes with being God's created being. Deconstructors, number two, as sinners. Sin affects everything about us. Our sin nature isn't something we simply put on the shelf until we feel like sinning. It's always with us. So that's at play here. Number three, deconstructors as seekers. There's a temptation to think that if we could provide enough evidence, our loved ones will change their mind. But for many, it's not an evidence issue. It's a heart issue. Number four, deconstructors as captives. And then you go deconstructors as rebels. But I want to go on to how do we... If you've got a loved one who's deconstructing, first of all, that's got to be scary. And I want to acknowledge that. That has to be scary. To see somebody that you desperately love go, I don't believe this anymore. I don't want to be part of a church anymore. I don't want to even be part of this faith anymore. That's, I, I want to acknowledge that that's scary and that's hard. That's difficult. And then I would say this, our call and they use this term is to love the deconstructor. Is to love the deconstructor. Uh, look for ways to communicate, but don't, this shouldn't be a nightly argument where you feel like you need to argue them back into the kingdom. I think you're going to love them back into the kingdom to use that imagery Listen to them, hear their, hear what their problems are. Are they just deconstructing something that isn't even part of the gospel? Are they deconstructing something that they picked up from their childhood that may not actually be biblical? Whether it be in the church or whatever else it might be, or are they literally deconstructing, you know, the atonement of Christ or whatever, pick your theology. And then I'd say this, never underestimate, they write this, never underestimate the power of prayer. God can open any hard heart. We're never powerless unless we're prayerless, they write. Seeking relationship, living out the beauty of the gospel, devoting time to prayer is critical in loving those in deconstruction and have hope. The book of Acts Uh, Verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 14 tells us that God opened Lydia's heart to hear what Paul had to say. He did it for her and he can do it for your loved one too. So love the deconstructor. Don't argue. Uh, Don't make it primarily a debate. Don't think that you have to win them back into the kingdom. But especially if it's your kid, like don't let this become what defines them. Love your child be the parent point them to the gospel and pray 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 that is such a um such a powerful line they use there we're never powerless unless we are prayerless we're never powerless unless we are prayerless so pray and like what happened with Lydia, when God opened Lydia's heart, make that your prayer. God, would you open my son or my daughter's heart to your good news? Would you put people into their life who can help them again understand the good news of the gospel? Love your child, love your loved one, and pray, pray, pray. Can I... Uh, so, we haven't done grinds my gears in a while, and and I'm not... This is not a full one. Uh, can I just – I'm about to insult maybe somebody out there. If you still have your Christmas stuff up, it's time. We're in the middle of February. There's a couple people uh, in our – not right in our neighborhood but in our general na- neighborhood who have, um, you know, still have lights up. Or And you're like, are these now Valentine's Day lights? Are these now – what are these? can I just say uh, it's time let's put those things down and uh yeah it's it's time to take those things down and uh yeah a little public service announcement it annoys the rest of us the rest of us are ready for you to take down your Christmas decorations it's a month it's two months after Christmas uh it's time so uh, did you see this story of the teen at the Indiana car wash? Let me, I saw the video and it's gone viral. Uh, a teen in Indiana is going viral after she defended herself against a rude customer. Now, first of all, it makes no sense what this customer did. So the video picture it, it's from up high, it's at a car wash. This girl, teenage girl, 18 year old, just trying to make money is spraying water from a powerful hose. Uh, against the car as it's kind of you know you go to the car wash and you pull it up that thing and it just guides you along the whole way and before it goes through all the stuff she's spraying it and that's what she's supposed to do that's the job the person's getting a car wash there's nothing wrong with what's going on she's power washing this white sedan when out of nowhere the driver rolls down her window and throws a lemonade from a plastic cup at her and I don't know if the driver did this because they thought it was funny. Uh, I I just don't understand. Like that's the part of this that doesn't make sense, that this person just rolls down the window right before they're about to go through all the big brushes and all of this, just rolls on the window and throws lemonade. And this fast thinking 18 year old turns the power washer and begins spraying the person through the open window. And it was like, without missing a beat, because I think this person thought they were going to throw this at her and their car would immediately go in. She immediately th- turns it and just starts shooting this person with water. The the, the girl uh, said this. I was loading the car like I did with so many cars before that, making sure they safely entered the car wash belt. Once I pulled the car in all the way, I put the numbers into the system so they got the car wash they paid for. Many viewers... Uh, have said that the customer got what they deserved. Uh, How miserable do you have to be to throw a drink at a teenager doing their job? What possibly could inspire someone to treat a completely innocent stranger like that? Uh, She said, thankfully, you might be wondering, what did the employee think? The employer think the employer sided with her. uh, Because of workplace safety, Uh, She said, I told my managers who were not okay with the customer throwing a drink at me, the customer and her boyfriend have been banned from the car wash for life. Thankfully, I I just so I want to make a bigger point here, but let's just cheer on that girl. 18, like you got to Google it. If you haven't seen it, Google it, because she was fast. They throw this lemonade at her and she immediately turns this hose on them, and it had to have soaked the inside of the car. And it had to have soaked these people. But not to normalize and make this seem like a big societal thing, but who does something like that? Who throws like a, like, that's the biggest thing when you watch this, you go, why? What just happened there? Like, we can never normalize bad behavior. That's why I'm glad to see this person get what they deserve. Like there's no, this 18-year-old did nothing wrong. And I'm glad that her managers did not uh punish her at all. And in fact they instead they they told these people you can never come back here. So we can norm, never normalize bad behavior, but what's up with those people? Why do we do this stuff so this goes along with like the YouTube trends or the the, the the Instagram or TikTok trends where especially young people just do destructive and bad things for likes and views. And there's so many times, I, old man on the lawn moment, old man on the lawn moment. Why have we normalized like destructively mean behavior for the sake of social media? Like, I actually have begun getting uh, excited, like um, cheering on when somebody does something like this to someone else and they punch them. Like, I'm like, yes, teach them a lesson, because apparently there's whole TikTok um, accounts, there's whole YouTube accounts that are just people going up and they're always young, it's always young people going up and just doing mean things to innocent, unsuspecting people they're the worst people in the world. I know I'm being hyperbolic there, but they get what they deserve. Like these people who threw the lemonade got what they deserved. I hope it ruined their phones. I hope it ruined everything in their car. Like I hope it did all of that. These people on TikTok and YouTube who do mean things to just people going about their day, sometimes uh, violent things, but oftentimes just mean, um, just, it it can't be normalized. It just can't be normalized. And so we as a church and we as Christians, we stand up against these things and we go, what? No, no, we're going to love our neighbor. And again, I'm making too much. I get it from extrapolating too much from just a story at a random Indiana gas sta- um, car wash. But that was my first thought when watching it. I had two thoughts. How much of a jerk is that person in that car? There's nothing funny about that. That's just bullying and it's just mean and it's just, it's the worst. And two, good for her for getting them back right there. I get it. We're not supposed to do revenge, but in those cases, like, it's the worst. So anyway, saw that story, go Google it. It's, uh, it's sometimes fascinating. Well, so I want to end the show here with an interesting article at the gospel coalition says this, why discipleship must target apathy. It's that word apathy, apathy. As I read this, I want you to think to yourself, what's the danger of apathy? And the bigger question is, am I apathetic? I think it has a little bit to do with what we talked about in the first hour. If you missed it, go get the podcast, but where we talked about expectation. Do I have expectation that God is at work? Do I have expectation? So we read this. Considering its title, the book, D, The Great D Churching, maintains a surprisingly optimistic tone. The hopefulness of the author stems from the fact that of the 40 million people who've left the church, a majority think they'll one day return, 51%. Those 51% are the, quote, casual dechurchers, those who left because of extenuating circumstances. You might remember months ago we talked about this, about the number one reason being that people just moved. While the casually de-churched may signal hope for a renewed evangelical future, they also cast an indictment on her past. In the 1973 book, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing, the lifelong liberal mainliner Dean Kelly argued that the conservative churches outgrow liberal ones because they offer, quote, large-scale meanings for people. Large-scale meanings guide your life and strengthen you in the face of death. Conservative churches proclaim cosmic truths that enabled people to face suffering with confidence and hope. Religious communities are resilient, they said, to the degree they empower congregants to live guided by a, quote, cosmic purpose that isn't comfortable outside the community. Combine Kelly's insights with the great de-churching, they write, and one must wonder whether American evangelical churches are supplying the large-scale meanings people can't find anywhere else. The casually dechurched aren't rejecting Jesus because they desire an alternative truth to guide their lives. In that sense, they're not rejecting him at all. They're just apathetic. The spiritual sickness of our age. Apathy. Apathy. Apathy doesn't manifest itself in all day moping around. Instead, it's a can be a restlessness that entices us to pursue everything but our most important duties. Think about it. Apathy sets into our marriages where we worry about everything else but our marriages. Apathy can get into our parenting where we stop being intentional with our kids. And apathy certainly can become part of our faith where we go, eh, it is what it is. And I don't have a focus. It's a lukewarm, right? The book of Revelation. Jesus is talking to the church of Laodicea and he talks about them being lukewarm, the lukewarm Christians. Another word for lukewarm is apathetic. This is the apathetic Christian. He's going to relate it to Seinfeld here. Seinfeld, Seinfeld made its thing about being about nothing, right? It was always about... Uh, things that didn't matter, inconsequential things. I love Seinfeld, but it's true. And the author goes on to say, so a spiritual apathy invades the church. Church leaders must ask whether our discipleship practices are inoculating people from the surrounding toxins of meaninglessness. That millions have stopped attending altogether suggests we have room to grow. And so what's his answer? What is the author's answer? Well, let's first keep diagnosing the problem. There's a natural drift that happens in our lives, a drift away from passion. Again, I said in our marriages, take your marriage. When you first get married, there is this this honeymoon period. There's this passion. There's this intensity of love and passion and um, whatever else it may be. And over time, that can wane. And it can wane towards apathy. It usually, we don't stumble towards passion. Also true for our marriages. We do not stumble into passion. Also for our faith. I believe as human beings, our natural inclination is towards apathy. It's towards comfort. We've talked about the idol of comfort on here before. So is your faith right now apathetic? I think the biggest, before we get to the cure, the biggest um, thing we need to do is to just diagnose it. Yes, I'm apathetic. It manifests itself in some practices. I don't go to church anymore. Uh, I don't read my Bible or pray. I never share my faith. Or I just have lost what we talked about earlier, any expectation that God is at work. I've lost expectation. Are you apathetic? Has apathy creeped in where it did not exist before? This author is going to say there's a cure, and the cure is worship. So what can we do? He says the answer isn't merely more instruction. According to this book, the research, de-churched evangelicals possess a much better understanding of orthodoxy than their Catholic or mainline de-church counterparts. De-churched evangelicals' beliefs are almost identical to evangelicals who still attend church. This suggests doctrine isn't the main thing dechurched evangelicals lack. The main problem is indifference. In other words, apathy emerges less from lack of knowledge than from lack of conviction about what is true. Think about that. It's less about lack of knowledge and more about lack of conviction? And the answer is worship. The answer is in awe of once again being confronted by Almighty God that he is, he is the God of the universe who loves me so much that he sent his son. That for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. He has done that for us. And it's this awe of of who God is and what he has done for us that then shakes us of our apathy that says, how can I be apathetic about this good news? But it's when the good news becomes old news that apathy creeps in. Friends, the answer is worship. The answer is a proper perspective of who God is, what he has done, who I am, and what I deserve. It's this recentering of this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes those who are apathetic and gets them back to running the race. Uh, that's the cure for apathy. He writes, the author says, we shouldn't lower the bar. To make Christianity more palatable. Rather, reversing the dechurching trend will require doubling down on counterform counterformative practices that reinvigorate hearts de- deadened by our culture of apathy. The gospel must increase and become more demanding even as it becomes more satisfying. Only large-scale meanings will do. As our king soberly said, whoever is unwilling to sacrifice, uh Even their own life, such a person cannot be his disciple. The answer, my friends, is worship. The answer is worship. I'm glad that you joined us today on this President's Day. If you missed any of the show, go get the podcast. Have a great night, and we hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. Aim 1160, hope for your life. We are the mediocre presidents,
0: you won't find our faces on dollars or on cents. There's Taylor, there's Tyler, there's Gilmore and there's Hayes, there's William Henry Harrison. I died in 30 days! We are the adequate, forgettable, occasionally
1: regrettable, there, take your presidents of the you.